Alright, here we go. Alright, um, so um, we're going to dig into second source, second, uh, secondary sources uh, here in the next few days. Um, and these are the historians of the era. Now, um, let, me, let me name them for you. Uh, Gordon Wood, uh, he's kind of a staple of APUSH. Uh, Bernard Balin, uh, Pauline Meyer, uh, Woody Holton, Gary Nash, and Charles Beard. I'm going to talk about Beard later on today. Uh, beard is in like beard. Um, uh, the reason why I bring up these guys is because APUSH tends to ask you questions on the test, uh, or College Board asks you questions on the test about um, perspectives of historians, specifically about this era. Okay, the the history I would say, as of we'll say as of the year 2000, the history of the revolution is pretty much done with. Like, there's not really any new information that we're finding or that we could possibly find that would change the history of the revolution. Okay? Yes, question. Can you say the names again? Sure. Gordon Wood. You, really, you don't need to know this. Oh, I don't? I just want you to know that there's different interpretations of the American Revolution. Gordon Wood, um, Bernard Balin, Pauline Meyer, Woody Holton, Gary Nash, and it's actually Gary B. Nash, um, and then Charles Beard. Okay? These are probably the most prominent historians of the revolutionary period. Um, I have a 1,200-page book by Wood. It's part of the Oxford History of the United States. It's really good. Uh, I've read every one of them. Um, they all have different perspectives um, and are thoroughly, like, they are experts in their fields. Okay? Um, so, and we're going to come back to this because interpretation comes up even during the Fresh and Indian War. Uh, real quick, uh, if, you raised, if, you, if you said yes on the reading chapter 6, uh, you will appreciate this. If you didn't read chapter six, you may be a little lost. Okay, so uh, we're recording this right now. If you want, go home read chapter six. Um, I read, I read it in a half hour. It's kind of short, too short in my opinion. Uh, but okay, uh, okay. So clashes of empire. Um, I went over the the Europe, uh, European history aspect of the, all this because you need to know how all of this kind of emerges. Basically, chapters one through five all leads up to this point. Okay? Um, we've been waiting for Europe to kind of figure out what they're doing with the Americas. We know what they're doing. They're trying to economically exploit it. Uh, I think that's one perspective from historians that you will, ta that you will see them talk about. Uh, you'll see other ones that we're going to talk about later on about um, how politically um, valuable the American Revolution was, as well as the French and Indian War was for colonists. Okay? Um, I love this chart. People don't think that there's more than two world wars. Okay, there are more technically global wars. Okay, um, so the Seven Years' War. Okay, they call it uh, Seven Years' War in Europe. We call it the French and Indian War. I'll start right now. The French and Indian War is not the Indians and the French who fight against each other. Okay, the reason why we call it the French and Indian War is because it is the French and Indian Indians against the uh, colonists and British. Okay. Uh, sorry, there's one to you there. Um, and in, Native Americans do side with the colonists. There are, there are Native Americans that uh, fight uh, aside them. If there's one movie I could show that would describe the French Indian War, it's called Last of the Mohicans. It's like four hours long. And it is, <clears throat> it's also a book. It was a book originally, Daniel Defoe. Um, <clears throat> and uh, it is one of the greatest movies of all time, I would say. Like, well-written, 
the actor who is the main actor of the movie, he has won multiple Oscars. It's um, Daniel Day-Lewis, the guy who did There Will Be Blood. He's the main, he's half French, half Native American, and he's an intermediary between the French and the British, as well as Native Americans. And so, um, but anyway, sorry. Uh, so this is a global war, okay? Um, they talk about how it, you can see it in the Philippines, you can see it in Africa, you see it in Latin America, you see it in Europe, obviously. Um, but it is definitely a global war. Um, and if you do the math, um, this is not seven years. Okay? Just saying. It starts in 54 in America, okay? And it's not represented here. <coughs> Excuse me. So um, it's seven years in Europe, but it's more than that in the United States or in the North American continent, okay? Uh, and so we'll, we'll talk about that because George Washington is important. Uh, this is Europe before. This is Europe before the conflict. You can see the, the green portions. France has quite a bit of claim to it. Uh, the orange portions, it's all Spain. This is British, and this is British, okay? Um, do you have a question? Yeah, I'm just like, <clears throat> why did the British, like, hop over the French to get, like, all the inland? You need like, to go back to this stuff here, these, these first wars over here. Okay. Um, Post-exploration era, you're seeing them kind of jostle over territory. This is the big one, the Seven Years' War, the, the French Indian War. Um, so, uh, they claim it as, they, they term it as a global war. I love this map, this was from the book. Uh, you can kind of see the clashes all over the place. Um, there's the Philippines and India, okay? Um, Senegal, technically. Um, so uh, one thing that I wanted to point out was uh, this is created, this is generally imagery used for the American Revolution, okay? This is not from the American Revolution, okay? Uh, Benjamin Franklin made this in 1754, okay, at the onset of the uh, French Indian War. The reason why I point that out is because the imagery and the thoughts behind and the results of the, the French Indian War, it carries over through the uh, uh, Revolutionary War. Okay, the ideas behind it. Okay. Um, this is again, uh, so they do a good job, I thought, of, of highlighting the Germans. Okay, if you didn't know it, Prussia is Germany, Germany is Prussia. The, the difference is, is that this is the um, emperor or uh, uh, Emperor of uh, Prussia at the time, it's uh, Frederick the Great. He actually went to war with the French uh, in Europe during this time. This is pre-war, um, and this is what Germany and Italy look like pre-war. Okay, They got into this habit of letting small kingdoms exist within a larger empire, uh, which is not helpful. Okay, You want fewer, fewer cooks in the kitchen. Okay, um, And so this ends up creating conflict for about 300 years. Uh, think, think like Marco Polo, Venetians, okay? That, the whole, like, we're a small empire, we're going to chart our own territory all the way through, the, basically, the American Revolution. Um, I highlight this because what happens here, again, affects the North American continent, okay? Also, this is, this is going to be how Europe is shaped, uh, and their ideas here also affect the American Revolution. Okay. There's a great painting uh, from World War II or pre-World War II where there's a girl on a boat and uh, she's looking out and she can see a storm coming in. 
Okay, and you can see the sun setting behind her. So she's looking east towards Europe, sun setting behind her in the west, seeing the storm come in. Generally, historically, things that happen in Europe, they eventually float towards us. Okay? I would say the whole Brexit thing, if you if you followed anything along what England's trying to do right now, okay, I think we have seen our own small version of a, a Brexit. Hi. Uh, starting to take place in America right now. Uh, okay, so uh, I love this map. I just wanted you to see the territorial. Uh, this is... Uh, oh, I cheated. This is uh, the British Empire post-French uh, and Indian War. Okay? So it, it doesn't look like it covers a whole lot. By the time that we get to World War I, they have large chunks of Africa. They have large chunk, chunks of Asia. Uh, they really struggle to maintain any type of control over the, the Americas. Okay, this is basically peak. At the end of uh, the French Indian War is peak British Empire in the North American continent. It kind of goes down from there. Um, all right, so uh, with it being a global war, these are the um, these are all the the countries that are involved and territories that it takes place in. Okay, so again, hitting the point that it's a global war. Um, these are all the locations. This is from the book. Um, I wanted to highlight this because uh, we're going to dig into the Native American aspect of this, and this is all Native American territory, technically. Okay, the French have done a really good job with uh, economically aligning themselves with what Native Americans want when it comes to fur trapping and uh, fishing and all kinds of other things, all kinds of natural resources that the French want to extract from the North American continent. The, the British are not as kind. Okay? Part of it is that because after this war, we see colonists are not as kind. This war sets up colonists to get a little fired up about where they are in uh, global history. Um, I showed you this to you guys last week. Yeah. Okay, this is the Ohio country. Um, this is where you see uh, nations, uh, Native American nations, collectively coming together and creating uh, packs like never seen before. And it's solely because you see the invasion of Europeans. Uh, this is. Um, the battle at Fort Duquesne, it's not Desquigny, okay? It's Fort Duquesne. I know it looks like it's not Duquesne, but I can promise you it is. This is the scene, uh, this was the, uh, the depiction of Native Americans fighting against uh, British soldiers. You, this, is, this is when we see uh, George Washington start to get his, um, I, I can only think of a big word, bona fides, if anyone knows what that word means. Chutzpah, um, awards. It's where he gets he, he famous. This is uh, the depiction of the Battle of uh, Quebec. There's two major battles in North America that are pivotal for the French and Indian War. One's the Battle of Quebec, and the other one's the Battle of Montreal. There are other um, instances, uh, especially seen here. This is called the Plains of Abraham. Okay, it's still called the Plains of Abraham. It's like the most fertile part of Canada. Um, and so it, it's a contested spot. Um... So yeah, th this is absolutely a global war. Uh, okay, so the battle specifically, here is Fort Duquesne, okay? Uh, 1758, um, it's taken over by the British. Uh, you have Fort Niagara, here's Montreal, um, there's Quebec, okay? Uh, the St. Lawrence River, is vital for the British and the French, so this is, this, these, these forts are key. Um, 
Okay, so here is uh, Braddock. Uh, I'm forgetting on this guy's name. Anybody read it? remember the famous British generals? Amherst, Braddock, and Pitt. Sorry, Pitt. <laughs> William Pitt. Okay, and then this is George Washington himself. Uh, this is the earliest known portrait of George Washington. Okay, uh, and it's shortly after the French Indian War. Um, so the, the, the story is, and it kind of goes along with this image back here, um, Washington is with a bunch of troops walking towards Fort Duquesne. Um, and Fort Duquesne is at a, um, I guess you could say a tributary, where two rivers meet, okay, uh, sorry, three rivers meet, and uh, it's a French fort called Fort Duquesne. It eventually becomes uh, Fort Pitt, which is what we know as Pittsburgh today. Okay, so it's that location. They actually still have like the outlining of the original fort. Um, uh, he's walking towards it. Um, there's some, the history's kind of muddy. Um, what I generally like to believe is that Washington fell down a hill and then happened to fall upon in front of French troops. And that's what starts the French and Indian War. That's one, that's one account of it. I don't think that's the true account of it, but I love that thinking that Washington fell down a hill and started a war. Uh, but it is his troops that end up engaging French troops, um, and that is the very beginning in 1754 of the war. Um, it's, uh, the British don't, and they say this, they do a really good job of this in, in um, uh, the book. Um, Braddock is the first general to arrive in Virginia, I believe, uh, and they end up taking over Fort Duquesne in 1758, but Braddock dies, and it's also a small, uh, it, it, it's, it's uh, a small amount of British soldiers that are going up against a large amount of fur trappers, French soldiers, mercenaries, uh, also some Germans who live in the Canadian area. They're all joining in on the fight. Um, and so that's how it begins. Um, after that, then you have Pitt who comes in becomes a, a force to be reckoned with, as well as Amherst. I haven't talked about Amherst. I will here in a second, because he does some pretty pivotal things. Yes? D-U-Q-U-E-S-N-E. Uh, -E. I, I have a million documentaries about the French Indian War, the American Revolution, all kinds of stuff, but I don't think that I can, I can spend some, some of our capital in the classroom on, on videos if you want, but it's not necessarily going to help you. It's great imagery. It's great visuals. Um, I have a 10-hour documentary on the Constitution, um, and it is, it is dry. Um, so, uh, moving on. Okay, so here's Amherst. Amherst looks fantastic. Uh, these are Native Americans. Uh, this is a, a political cartoon, technically, in England. Um, people challenging the status quo of the crown, and we're going to get to that because it's super important. Um, British soldiers uh, kind of poking and prodding the Cherokee. The Cherokee div are divided. They both support the French and the, uh, and the British. This is Amherst. Uh, this is uh, a correspondence between Amherst and another soldier. Okay, he says, it, it couldn't be more contrived to send the smallpox among the disinfect, uh, disaffected tribes of Indians. Uh, we must, on this occasion, use every stratagem in our power to reduce them. You didn't read that wrong. Okay? Um, another, in response, 
uh, to Amherst, this guy, Bouquet. He says, I will try to inoculate the Indians by means of blankets that they may fall into their hands, taking care, of, uh, taking care however, not to get the disease myself. Uh, as, it is a, as it is pity to oppose good men against them, I wish we could make use of the Spaniards' method and hunt them with English dogs. Okay? Uh, supported by rangers and some uh, light horse, who would, who would I think effectively uh, extirpate or remove that vermin? Okay? So in response, Amherst replies, P.S., uh, you will do well to try and inoculate the Indians by means of blankets, as well as to try, uh, as well as to try every other method uh, that can serve to extirpate uh, uh, this uh, extirpable race. Which is, like, this is referencing, like, excrement. Uh, I should be very glad your scheme for hunting them down by dogs could take effect, but England is too great uh, a distance to think uh, of that at present. So instead, we're just going to give them blankets full of small, smallpox. So uh, that chips away at the success of the, uh, of the French, because all of a sudden you have different tribes dying of smallpox. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think the book highlighted that well enough. Uh, so I wanted to. Uh, Amherst, again, is the British general that he's looked at and, and revered in British history as being one of the most important commanders. Like, they call him the commander of commanders, I think, or something along those lines. Uh, but th these are his tactics. Okay? So the resolution, this is the actual Treaty of Paris. If you didn't know, there's like 15, 16 different treaties of Paris. Um, this is uh, Fre uh, French troops surrendering to British uh, soldiers. Um, this, this goes along with the whole global war. Um, the French uh, and the Germans, sorry, um, the British and the Germans are against everyone else. It's two against like four or five. You got the Spaniards, the Russians, the French, the Belgians, I can't remember who else. But it, it's two against a lot and the two win. Okay, this is, this is probably one of the most important battles for British history. Uh, all, now, the map changes quite a bit. Okay, so this is the British territory before. This is all the pink and red is afterwards. Uh, Spanish, they, they give up Florida, uh, and in return they get uh, what is essentially like the Louisiana territory. Um, this, this, in turn, at one point in time, is given back to the French, and then Napoleon sells us this because he's desperate for money in 1803. Uh, and then this stays Spanish for a while. Okay, so, I mean, basically, there's, the French are gone. There's no more French. They're gone. Um, I really appreciate this map. We're going to come back to this map. You can see, uh, they say European settlement is the dark green, and the light green or yellow is uh, the settlement that you see them creeping out further and further west. They call the, the dark green line right here the frontier. Okay? As in, like, you shouldn't go past that line. Um, but by the time that we get to 1763, which is the, uh, this is part of the resolution, uh, colonists have this idea that, hey, we beat the French, uh, they're fantastic colonizers, we beat them at their own game, and now we can do what we want. Specifically the colonists, not necessarily just the British, but it's the colonists that are looking to do this. The, the British are trying to hold the colonists back because they know that, I mean, who lives over here? Indian. Thank you, yes, Native Americans, okay? Um, so they have to hold them back in some sense. The book, I love this line, they have a line where it says, literally, someone had to stop a thousand uh, horse and carts going into the Ohio Territory at one point in time. Like a thousand 
families were going to get up, uproot themselves, and move into the middle of nowhere because the resources were so uh, beautiful over here. Okay. Um, this is, I wanted to highlight Pontiac's war. This is Pontiac himself. It's not just a car. It's a guy. Um, he is representative of a couple different nation, nations, the Ojibwe and a couple of other Native American groups. He's not Iroquois and he's not Algonquin. He's a, he's, he's a different Native American. But he represents this, this area over here. He's Ottawa. That's what it is. Um, uh, so you can see this is some pretty important uh, Native American tribes like the Miami, um, you have the Kickapoo. Uh, these are all tribes that eventually, they either die off or they're forced to move south or west. And, and it's partly because of how this ends. So with, with the French giving up in 1763, uh, the, in, the Native Americans don't have an ally anymore against the, the British. Um, these towns still exist, like Fort Detroit was a French town to begin with. Okay, you have uh, Fort Niagara, you have uh, Montreal and Quebec that are up here. These all of a sudden become fr uh, British territories and British forts. So uh, Sandusky isn't the original name of it. Uh, Miami is the original name of it. But these are all uh, forts that end up becoming long-term towns or cities that we know of today. Um, so I wanted to highlight Pontiac's war. Um, he loses the war, eventually dies at the hands of Native Americans. Uh, but it's seen as kind of a turning point for Native American relationship, relations with British. Yes? Where are the French right now? If you said gone. They're, they're like, gone. They're, they're back in France. They're back in France. Yeah, they're looking to... So... Um, what event like happened for them to like go back? Was they lost. They lost them? the French and Indian War. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And and so what they do, and this becomes an issue for both the French as well as the British. Uh, the British are like they win, even though they win, they're still in debt because they just fought a global war. And so both the French and the British have to figure out how to somehow raise taxes and get money back. Well, the French really only have the French people to tax, and if you tax them for too long, they're going to get pissed and revolt. Um, so that's that's kind of like what we're going to see is this this process of overtaxing. Yes. So the French still own land there. They have no more land. Uh, cool. They're they're completely gone. Um, they regroup and then they start colonizing other parts of the world. I hope you spend enough time on that. Uh, the French end up uh, colonizing what is like Vietnam. They end up colonizing a lot of North Africa. Um, so yeah. Uh, okay, uh, so uh, I wanted to zoom in on this. I call this American fervor. This is the idea that the colonists are pumped up enough that they, can, they feel like they are starting to build a case and uh, with, with some great evidence that they no longer need to be controlled by the British. Okay, um, so I wanted to highlight this. You can see that, they're, that they are genuinely starting to move into Native American territory and that this is going to become a huge issue, not just for the Native Americans, not just for the colonists, but also for the British. When, when colonists start ignoring these lines, and this is the proclamation of 1763, which in my mind is generally the first thing that the British do to start the American Revolution. You can say other things, but to me, the proclamation of 1763 is the first step towards revolution, because you're starting to tell colonists you can't do things. Um, the book tells you otherwise. The book says it's the Navigation Acts, okay? And we'll talk about that here in one second. Um, but the, the moment that you start seeing the colonists ignore British requests and British laws, okay, going past this red line is against the law. 
There are British uh, 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 dignitaries and, and officials that live in the colonies, and they are supposed to keep control of the colonists. Okay, and they're losing control from this point forward. Yes? The proclamation of 17, it's called the proclamation line of 1763. Yeah. Is it 63? 63. Did I say 73? Yeah. Sorry, 63. My bad. Sorry that you have to put a 7 instead of a 6. No, wait, so 16. So it is 73. It's, no, it's 73. Sorry, 63. Another question? No. Okay. 63. Okay. How do you know all these things? Do you just memorize all of them? Um, I mean... You watch, you watch a lot of videos on it all the time in your free time. It's, it's genuinely books. Like, all of my knowledge comes from books. Like, the documentaries are great. Like, there's a great 18-hour Vietnam documentary. I still know more. I learned more from reading books than I did watching that 18-hour. I saw the first, like, three episodes of that, and then I got Um, yeah. Like, the reading is, like, genuinely the only way to do it. Like... Like, I, I, I'm trying to, part of my planning tomorrow is I want to assign you guys a book to read, and then we'll do book talks. Um, no. On top of the textbook, yeah. Yeah, with the textbook. It would be a summative, but it wouldn't be due for a while now. What's that one? The one we're also reading book. Oh, then you want to read Changes in the Land? If I'm going to have you do that, I'd rather have you read his Chicago book. Nature's Metropolis. What's up? I, I'm going to give you guys a long list of choices. Yeah. <laughs> My parents watched the 18 hour documentary. It's so good. They have a lot of good tidbits that like I picked up on that I didn't know because they interview a lot of the Vietnamese. That's the one thing I haven't read a lot about is the Vietnamese take on. I've only read like three or four books of the Vietnamese take on. Yeah, they watched it because my grandpa was in the war. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, so it's fine. All right. So let's talk about Republicanism and Whigism. Okay? That's not a, a typo or uh, I'm trying to be funny. Okay. Uh, the Whigs. Uh, they're a British political party. Um, well, let's start with republicanism. I didn't, I, could, I, I didn't find a good example of republicanism because generally this is uh, the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Um, I am going to have us go through a little bit of French and, and British history uh, because these, these thinkers are the ones who spur on the ideas of the revolution. Okay, so Rousseau, he's a republican. He looks back at the Greeks and the Romans uh, as being examples of as how society should function. They should have representation of small groups of people in a larger body somewhere in, in an influential place. Okay? So we live in a republic, if you didn't know that. We don't live in a democracy. We live in a republic. Okay? We have democratic elements that are, support our republic, okay? but we do not live in a democracy. Okay? The Iroquois were a complete and direct democracy where everyone had to vote yes on something for it to actually happen. Okay? Um, what's up? It had to be unanimous, yes. It's, the, it's one of the very few in human history that we've seen that. Correct. The Greeks, the Greeks were similar, but you had to be white and own land. Okay? Question. Didn't they say they also used like, their selfishness too, right? Like I thought in the book. Let me, let me, get, let me get to that. Okay. I'm going to get to that real quick. Okay, so Rousseau is a representative of republicanism. Okay, this is uh, John Locke. He is a representative of Whiggism. Okay, generally we don't think of Locke as a representative of Whiggism, but Locke was fired up enough that a lot of people consider him the first unofficial Whig. Okay, Whigs are against, uh, they desperately don't want a constitutional monarchy. They don't want a monarchy at all. They want Britain, it is a British political party, uh, and they, they 
do not want a queen or a king in charge of them. They just want the parliamentary system and that's it. A lot of countries function well with just a parliamentary system. Okay, India is an example. Uh, uh, Japan is, a, is an example. Uh, the Japanese... The, the Japanese still have royalty, and they are, they are just figureheads. They have no real meaning. Okay? Um, so, uh, these are ideas that eventually push the colonists towards this idea of... Uh, I'll get to it here in one second. Uh, I wanted to talk about the economic aspect of it. Okay? We, you guys went over the mercantilism reading. Okay? Mercantilism is the, the economic system that they have where silver and gold backs up economic systems. Um, uh, this is uh, John Paul, not John Paul Jones, uh, John, uh, Paul Revere. Uh, this is a famous painting of him. Um, John Paul Jones is a real person. Um, they, they highlight this, this picture of him because he is an artisan, and artisans are people who are professionals in making things. Okay, so you can, uh, there's tapestries, which is like fabrics. You're an artisan if you deal with tapestries, uh, metals, blacksmiths. Um, professionals are people who aren't using their hands, so uh, people who are lawyers and teachers and governors, those are professionals, these are artisans. Okay? Um, I bring in this example, uh, it says, this is from the book, Britain is symbolized as a lady of fashion, her rebellious daughter America, uh, as an Indian princess, their shields of obedience and liberty seem mutually exclusive standards, seem like they're mutually exclusive standards, but they are not. Okay? Um, this is from, this is a British political cartoon, and this is representing the, the, the new contentiousness between America and British, but also exposing uh, how ec uh, the economic beliefs behind everything starts to influence the revolution. Charles Beard's uh, argument for the American Revolution is that it was totally based off of money, that it was the only reason why we went to war with England was to break away so that, we, that way we can make our own money. Now. That brings me to uh, the Navigation Acts and the concept of home rule. Okay, the Navigation Acts, they start in 1660, and there's really two elements that you need from them. Uh, the ships had to have an English crew, and they had to have an English captain. There were some specifics as to, like, what products could go where, but you had to meet these two standards at the very least. So once you start seeing this in 1660, and I say by 1763, when you see the, the proclamation line being drawn, that red line, okay, those two things, uh, after winning the war and feeling like they can conquer anything, the colonists are fired up and they're ready for home rule. It's this concept of we don't need a mother country. We don't need that example of the, the um, uh, uh, British uh, queen or princess fighting with the American princess. Okay, we don't need that anymore. We've got republicanism. We've got Whigism. We just want a war. All of this is conjured up with this idea of home rule. I pulled this uh, quote from Franklin. It says, we have an old mother uh, that peevish is, go uh, is grown. Uh, we have an old mother that peevish is grown. Uh, she snubs us like children that scarce walk alone. She forgets we're grown up and have sense of our own. It's a fantastic poem. What's up? Uh, it is from the book, yeah. 1775 is when he says that. Okay? Uh, I believe that's it. Yeah. Okay? So, uh, I'm planning stuff tomorrow. Do me a favor. If you're going to read, read out loud. Okay? Read out, reading out loud, I, it genuinely works. Write stuff down after you read. Um, uh, I'm going to give you guys explicit lists of extra materials, so that way you guys can listen to podcasts, watch lectures, watch videos. If you want, I'll try and find a way to post 
documentaries if you want to watch them. Um, and then please message me with questions. You have the uh, historical context. Can I see it real quick? Okay, remember.